It's a good day to be in the Lord's house. Excited to be here. We did have a baptism first thing in the first service, and man, it was glorious, except for the heater didn't work and it was freezing. But other than that, you got your Bible with you, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to begin Hebrews this morning, and we'll continue on for the next eight or nine years or so. Who knows? So there are, there are times when just seems the weight of the world seems to be pressing down on you. You know, times of when trial and, and hardship or confusion or uncertainty or despair or all the things just seem to have a foothold in this life. Um, and in, there are times when those times come, it feels like God's is, God is, is silent. And when God feels silent in those times, I really need Him to speak to me. I need to know that, that I'm where He wants me, or I need assurance that His presence is with me. Times when I confuse my own ideas with, with God's will. And, and some say that during those times of suffering, times of hardship in this life, times of trial, when, when those times come upon us, some say that what we need is a fresh word from God. That's incorrect. What we need is a fresh look at Jesus. We need to go back to our first love and rekindle our passion to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. We need to be reminded that our God is not silent. God has spoken. And the fullness of his revelation is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son. I was going to do another sermon or two on service. We've been talking in the last three or four weeks about how we make disciples, grow disciples, worship, connect, serve. And uh, we've been talking about that. Last week I did the first uh, uh, sermon on service. And I was going to do a few more. But honestly, as I stand before you today, I, I just need to see Jesus. And I think we all just need to see Jesus. And one of the best places to see Jesus exalted and glorious so that our love and our passion to follow him is, is rekindled is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians that were dispersed out in the Roman world. Some think it was written to the Jewish Christians in Rome, others Alexandria. It was definitely written to Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, because all of the Old Testament quotes are from the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But these Jews dispersed in the Roman world, wherever this was written to, they were being persecuted. They were being marginalized for their faith. They were being ostracized by their fellow Jewish kinsmen. And by this time, persecution from Rome had also become all too common. They were enduring hardships that we can't possibly imagine. In fact, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, it says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they had suffered affliction for Christ. Even joyfully, it says, seeing their property plundered. And this had gone on for years. The great weight of all of this hardship, all of this suffering, all of this persecution, all of this 
hardness of life was tempting them, the Jewish Christians, to turn back to Judaism. They were, they were tempted to forsake actually following Jesus and go back to just going through the motions of the old religion. Judaism at this point was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. So returning to Judaism, you know, the temple and the sacrifices and the synagogues and, and all of the ceremonies and rituals, if they did that, that would spare them from further persecution from Rome, but it would also remove the shame and the dishonor that they were receiving from their fellow Jewish kinsmen. Living for Christ for these Christians had not been a worldly advantage to them. And many were understanding that, you know, life could be better if we would just go back. Hebrews is written to say, don't go back. Don't turn away from following Christ, even though you are suffering, even though it seems like, yes, life would be easier for you. Don't turn away from following Jesus and living according to his will. The refrain throughout Hebrews is, Jesus is better. We sang it just now. It's often translated in Hebrews as superior, but it's the same word. He is better. And this book, which really is just a big, long sermon over the Old Testament, it doesn't waste any time showing us the glory of the exalted Jesus. In the very first verses, the writer pleads for us. He pleads to us to just look to Jesus, see him in all of his beauty, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory. In verse 1, he says this, Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Literally, it says, in son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior, there's our word, better, to angels, as the, as the name he has inherited is much excellent, more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. I pray that you would guide us today just to see your beauty and your glory. Jesus, we, we, uh, we worship you. We, um, God, we just, we just call to you to come and show yourself to us today. In your majesty, in your power, and through your word, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So these believers were faced with a bleak future. This had gone on for a long time. In Hebrews 10, the verse we just read, he says, Remember in the former times when you endured all, it was still going on. They were faced with a bleak future that this life is just going to be filled with hardship if I continue down this path. And they were asking what all, any of us would be asking. You know, where is God in all this? Is this what my life is going to always be? Does God even know what's going on? And of course he knows, but does he care? Why does he not show himself in the midst of all of this? Why does God not answer when I call upon him? The first line in Hebrews chapter 1 shows them and us that God is not silent. God has answered. The Son is God's full and final word. 
He says, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. He is not silent in the trials that you're going through, Hebrew Christians. He's not silent in your life as you ask, where is he in all this? He has spoken to us in Son. Throughout history, God spoke in many ways by the prophets. We see that all through the Old Testament. God has always been a speaking God, a revealing God, revealing himself to his people. God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai in a storm. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. Ezekiel was given visions. Joseph was given dreams. God spoke to the king of Babylon in the book of Daniel with a finger writing on the wall. God appeared to Abraham in human form. He appeared to Jacob as an angel. God has always been a God who speaks to his people that they may know him and that they may know his will. And the writer says, in these last days, meaning the days of fulfillment, God has spoken to us as well. He's not silent. He's given us the final and full revelation of himself. He's spoken to us in Son, by His Son. Jesus is God's final word in salvation history. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. When we see Jesus, we know what God is like, the Father. We know how the Father thinks. We know how the Father talks. We know how the Father relates to us. God has spoken to us in His Son. Jesus is not just the final messenger of God. He himself is the message. The word, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation is the full and final redemption for God's people forever. He is the fulfillment of all God's purposes from the very beginning. He is what all of the scripture points to. When speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, Jesus said this, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Later in that same chapter, he said, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And on the road to Emmaus, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples. And it says there that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, meaning the Torah, the first five books of Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's all been pointing to Jesus. All of God's revelation has been pointing to this. And now he has come. No, God is not silent. God has spoken to us. He has spoken in the past and he has spoken definitively to us in his son. And what he has said is that the son who is given to us in the gospel is sufficient. He is enough. In the trial that you're facing, in the persecution that you're facing down, in the hardship that you see coming, he is enough. He's given all there is to give. If we're united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection by grace through faith, then God has given his once for all verdict on our life. Jesus has brought perfect standing with God. And in Christ, we know that no matter what happens in this life, 
Even if following Jesus means hardship and suffering in this life, we can trust his will for us. We're adopted, brought into covenant with him. God has spoken. He's spoken once for all. There is no new revelation that we need because God has not been silent. He's spoken. And the word that he has spoken in Jesus, it still speaks today. Near the end of this book, in Hebrews 12, 25, it says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In chapter 3, we looked at it two weeks ago. It says, today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. God has not been silent. He's spoken to us in his son. So next, the writer of Hebrews turns our eyes toward the son. He pulls us near to gaze at Jesus' glory because that is the word that we need to live faithfully, especially when hardship is coming. The Son is God in the flesh. He said He's spoken to us in Son, and then He says, Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Let's take these phrases one at a time. By saying he's the heir of all things, the writer of Hebrews is consciously identifying Jesus, the son, with the Lord's anointed, the heir of David's throne in Psalm chapter 2. That's the psalm where God says to David's heir, whom he calls son in Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. In fact, Psalm 2 is actually quoted in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 1. So... By saying he's the heir of all things, we're told that Jesus, the son, is the long-awaited Messiah, the heir of David's promise, who's received the kingdom. Jesus, the eternal son of God, took upon a, a human nature. He entered into his own creation, lived perfectly according to the law of God as a man, He gave his life, his perfect life on the cross to pay for sin, was resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, exalted as both God and man, and the kingdom was given to Jesus as God, but also as man. A real human being was made heir of all things. A real man was given a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of the Father. The Lord of glory rules over all. He is the heir, the seed of David, because this man is also God in flesh. Jesus, whom they profess as Messiah, these Hebrew Christians, the heir of David, is Yahweh, the one true God. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he is the creator of all things. You see the text? through whom he also created the world. Jesus as the instrument of creation? That's not a novel idea to the book of Hebrews. In John chapter 1, it says all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The universe itself has always belonged to the Son, for he created it. It was through him that he came into being. And then in verse 3 it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Together, these two statements emphasize that the Son as the perfect image of God the Father. The Son represents the very essence, the very being of God. First, we're told that he's the radiance of God's glory. He is the outshining of the glory of God. The glory of God made visible. The Hebrews had a word for this outshining, this visible radiance of the glory of God. That word is Shekinah. The glory of God. The writer says Jesus, the Son himself, is that shining of God's glory. That full expression of all that is God. And he goes on to say that the Son is the exact imprint of, look at it, God's nature. Nature, it's probably translated in some of your translations as being or essence. He is the exact imprint of God's being or God's nature. In the ancient world, uh, legal documents were sealed with a blot of wax. And into that wax, the sender, whether it's a businessman or politician or whatever authority was sending the document, would put a signet ring into that wax and it would leave an impression, an imprint. It's the same word that's used here. That imprint was an exact representation, an exact image of the signet ring. Here, the same word is used, and we're told that Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact representation, the visible imprint of the very nature of God, the being of God, the essence of God. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh because no other person, no other being could ever be said to be the exact imprint of God's nature. And because Jesus the Son is God in flesh, that's the reason that he is the fullness of God's revelation, his word. Only he can be. And the Son through which God has spoken, it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's the Son who is actively involved in holding every molecule of this universe together by His Word. The reason that your heart is still beating since I started preaching this morning, that you're breathing His air, is because His Word is upholding your very existence. It's the Son who is holding this universe together, moving this universe, as it were, toward its desired end, His desired end. That's important for the Hebrew Christians that are reading this, struggling to be faithful, knowing that faithfulness to Christ means hardship and suffering. If Jesus upholds the universe by his word, then his word is enough to sustain you as you live faithfully despite the cost. And so the writer of Hebrews, with the most exquisite language, describes this indescribable Jesus so that these Hebrew Christians can really see who they are being tempted to walk away from. 
Jesus is the God who has spoken. He is the full and sufficient word for everything his people need. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. He is Jesus, the one upholding the whole universe by the word of his power. How can you turn away from him? How can you turn back to anything else? And if that isn't enough for you, this, this son, this God, a very God, creator, sustainer, radiant glory, he is the one who makes purification for sin. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's because Jesus is God the Son who came in flesh that he is able to make complete atonement for sin. He is the true and perfect high priest. He's better than the priests of the Old Testament. He is the perfect sacrifice which cleanses sin better than all the Old Testament ritual sacrifices and ceremonies. In the days of the tabernacle and the temple, those sacrifices that would, would happen over and over again, they could never take away sin. They had to be repeated over and over because they were never enough. And anything you can offer today in, in, as a way to appease God or to please God or to, or to earn standing before God, it's never enough. But Jesus offered himself the perfect lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He made purification of sin once for all. There's no one else that can do that. There's nothing else that can do that. There's no other sacrifice that you can offer that can make atonement. There's no other religious observance that you can go back to if you forsake the Son. Later in chapter 10 of Hebrews, the writer says, if you willfully sin after receiving knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for sin. He's saying, you can't go back to offering those animal sacrifice even if you wanted to. You can't go back to offering your rituals and your ceremonies and your works and your religious observances and back to the old religion. You can't go back to that if, if you wanted to. There is no sacrifice for sin if you've received knowledge of the truth and then turned from it. None of that can do anything for you now that the once for all sacrifice has been given. Don't turn away from the only purification of your sin. He has done once for all what all the other priests could never do that the Hebrew Christians were thinking about going back to. Jesus said from the cross, it's finished. The Old Testament priest's work was never finished. We just got finished going through the book of Exodus on Wednesday nights. It was long and it was laborious, let me tell you. We walked through all the instructions for building the tabernacle and all the furniture that God commanded to be built, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the bronze altar, all the things needed to serve God in the tabernacle. But what we didn't find and what you won't find in the tabernacle or the temple is a chair, any chair or a bench, a place for the priest to sit down. 
Day after day, week after week, year after year, they moved from the tabernacle to the wash basin, and they washed, and then they moved from the wash basin to the bronze altar, and they offered sacrifice for whatever Hebrew had come in the, in the gate of the tabernacle to offer sacrifice, and then they moved from the bronze altar back to the wash basin, washed again, then moved back to the tabernacle over and over and over and over and over again. People streamed in day after day, offering their sacrifice. The job was never finished, and as soon as they offered this sacrifice, they left the courtyard of the tabernacle. You knew at some point they'll be back. Day after day after day after day. Over and over. It was never finished. During the priest's time of duty, time of service, there was never a time that they were done, they were finished, and would just sit down. Every year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, bringing the blood of the sacrifices, sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement, and he would come back and do it again next year, and the next year, and the next year, and then he would die, and the next high priest would come and do it next year, and another year, and another year. It never ended. Year after year, atonement, purification for sin was never complete. But Jesus, the Holy Son of God, the great and perfect high priest, crossed the boundary from heaven to earth, gave his perfect life as a spotless lamb, rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and our high priest entered into the real holy of holies by the blood of his sacrifice. He made purification for sin, and for the first time in all of creation, a high priest said, Sat down because his work is finished and the work of atonement is complete. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He is the only purification for sin. Don't turn away from him. And his being seated at the right hand shows us that his work is finished. But it also shows us that this son of glory, this radiance of God, this revelation in its fullness reigns over all. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior, there's our word better, to angels as the, the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The rest of this chapter shows us why Jesus is more excellent, superior, better than the angels, the messengers of God. And we'll look at that next week. But here it says, completing the work of atonement, the exalted Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty, right hand of the Father as both God and man. To be at someone's right hand is to be at the position of honor, privilege. The Old Testament, the Lord's right hand is the position of favor and power. Jesus is seated on the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, the letter to Laodicea, the Lord Jesus invites us to sit upon his throne with him. He says the one who conquers, in this context he's talking about the one who remains faithful. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He reigns. 
Don't turn away from this king. He is the prophet, the true prophet who brings the fullness of the word. He is the true priest who gives purification of sin. And he is the true king who reigns. Don't turn away from him. But him reigning on the throne is not all it means when he sat down at the right hand of the Father. This glorious and powerful king of kings seated on the throne is not just reigning. Romans 8.34 says he's at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for you. Don't turn away from him. The point of this opening section in Hebrews is simply to say, look to Jesus. See him in all of his glory, in all of his splendor. These Christians were suffering and there was no, in, in their minds, there was no hope for any other kind of life. It was a bleak outlook on their future life on this earth. <clears throat> Writer of Hebrews is saying, look to Jesus. See him for who he is the majesty of his person, gaze upon the magnificence of his power and his name and be amazed at his grace and the redemption that he has given for you. No, God has not been silent toward you. God has spoken in his son and what he has said in Jesus speaks loudly to us today just as it did to them. Hebrews 12, 25, I quoted at the beginning, says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Hebrew Christians, the writer might say, I know it seems like going back is going to provide you an easier life. Be so much simpler. You won't have to worry about the commands of this king anymore. You won't have to worry about the obligation to follow him and his will. You can join the rest of the religious crowd that you grew up with, just going through the motions, doing the things, doing the rituals, doing the stuff. You wouldn't have to face the reality of denying yourself or face the hostility of the world. The writer's saying, but don't turn away. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than whatever it is that you're hoping for. Jesus is better than what you think you will receive by going back. And all of us in this room, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure most of us, I'm, I'm willing to say all of us in this room, Judaism is not what you're toying around with going back to. Maybe it's just the desire to live for self, to have an easier earthly life. To be free from the demands of following Jesus and what it truly means. Let's just go back to the way things were. You know, we'll still go to church. We'll still do the thing. We'll still, you know, go through the motions and do what we've always done. Jesus is better. Even if you don't understand how it's going to play out. Denying yourself. Jesus said, if any man wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. That's hard. It's not easy for any of us. It's not easy for any of us because we're all fallen creatures. It's very tempting just to turn away, to excuse our sin, to try and make up for our sin by doing good things, which is what works-based religion is all about. 
We think, well, I'm not really turning from Jesus. I mean, I'll still go to church. I'll still do the thing. I'll still worship. But just going back to old religion is not following Jesus. You can't go back. Jesus is all or nothing. God has spoken and his final word to us is Jesus. I understand you, you don't have the strength to endure. I see that. None of us do. You don't know what will happen if I follow Jesus. He's better. I remember a conversation I had. I didn't say this in the first service, so y'all are lucky. You're welcome. Just now, I remember a conversation that I had with a man probably 10 years ago. And he, he was part of the church I was a part of. And he was about to make a decision that was the wrong decision. And he knew it. And I remember talking to him. And I remember saying, what does Jesus want you to do? What does the word of God say? And this man says, I know that Jesus doesn't want me to do this, but I have to do this for my family. And so, you know, I'm not the sheriff. I'm nobody's whatever. So I remember him. I remember through that whole year, I remember him coming back and he had lost everything. Everything. Jesus is better. His way is better. His word is better. The writer of Hebrews is telling these struggling, suffering Christians who don't know how they can continue on, he's telling them, look at the greatness of Jesus and just know that he's better no matter what. Look at who he is and the perfection of his nature. Look at what he has done. The final word from God has come to you. God has not been silent. He's spoken to you. He's spoken to us, not on tablets of stone, but in a person, God in the flesh. He was tempted in all points, just as you are. He did not sin. He gave himself to you and for you to justify you, to present you spotless and blameless. Don't turn away from him. As creator, he made you. As the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of his nature, all that you need of God, you will find in Jesus Christ. He upholds the universe by the word of his power so he can uphold you as you choose to follow him despite your sufferings and your persecutions. He knows what you are enduring and he is moving all things toward his goal. Don't turn away from him. God is spoken. He is not silent. Look to Jesus. He's better. He's better than whatever you're tempted to run toward. He's worthy of all of your life. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of all that you are. He's worthy of your allegiance. He's worthy of your obedience, even if it means difficulty in this life or suffering in this life. He is better than whatever you're tempted to run after. Don't turn away from Him. In your weakness, in your uncertainty, in your despair. Look to Jesus and be made new in him. He is better. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we do thank you that you are 
so glorious and wonderful. God, we thank you that you have given us grace upon grace upon grace. That you strive with us. God, I pray for... I pray that you would just make your name great among us. In our hearts. That you would make your name great. That you would let us sanctify you as Lord in our hearts. Set you apart. You are worthy of more than we can ever give you. You're worthy of our whole life. Worthy of our worship. Worthy of our devotion. Worthy of our obedience. You're worthy of more than we can ever give. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself in such a mighty way in our hearts that we could not turn away from looking at the glory and the splendor of your Son. Father, if there's people here that don't know you, that has, has never trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would make the gospel come alive in their hearts. Show them the death of Jesus for their sin, that it was payment for their sin, the resurrection which justifies the payment accepted. God, and I pray that you would just call them to trust in you, to trust in the cross, to trust in the gospel, to trust in the resurrection, to trust in Jesus, for he is better. To entrust our lives and all that we are to you, knowing that we don't know what's best, we don't know what to do, we don't know how to survive. We don't know how to walk through the path of this life. But we know that you are better than anything else we hope for. God, I pray that you would save souls today and that you would call us to yourself. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here at the front. I would love to pray with you if you want to come. Will you stand with me?